Hello, you are listening to Rural Roots. I'm Boyan Fürst, and today I have a co-host, my colleague Rebecca Koho. Hi there. Uh, Rebecca, you were part of the Rural Roots right from the beginning, and actually most people who listen to this don't really know that, but you named the show. Yeah, it's going right back to my rural roots, growing up on <laughs> at RR2 Burgessville, Ontario. See, if it were up to me, it would have been called like knowledge mobilization meta tools for rural development communications or something. Yeah, it's a good thing I'm across the hall. Yeah, it really is. Um, so today we have four stories to tell you. Uh, but it's really all one story. Yeah. Uh, today we're going to be talking about going back to the farm. Yeah. And you grew up on a farm, you said. Sort of. Uh, I would say I'm, I kind of grew up farm adjacent. So I wasn't right on the side of the family farm, but I was over there as often as I could be, climbing up the side of silos, jumping in grain bins, and doing all the stuff that you do when you have one of those amazing, totally dangerous rural upbringings. Uh, and, and, you know, a lot of my, a lot of my family are still uh, either working on the farm itself or working in various uh, different jobs related to agriculture. That's really interesting because I grew up in a city, in an industrial town. I actually thought that Dirty Old Town was a song about my hometown. I literally grew up next to a factory wall for alcoholic and non-alcoholic beverages. Right. Uh, so, uh, one of the stories, the story you collected um, actually comes from your family. Yeah, we're going to be talking to my cousin, Lindsay Menick, uh, who actually has uh, made the decision to head back to the family farm after doing a lot of really different other things prior to that. And I collected three stories, actually. Um, one is uh, from your neck of the woods in southwestern Ontario. That's going to be Katrina McWhale. Uh, we'll hear, hear from her last. Um, on PI, I talked to Mary Ellen Godfrey. Um, so Mary Ellen is from Prince Edward Island, but she's also a good friend. We used to work 17 years ago mm. uh, as reporters together in northern New Brunswick. And the last one comes from Italy, and that's the story of uh, Lisa Paganelli. Great. So we're talking going back to the farm, but the other interesting thing that I can't help but point out is the fact these are all women. Uh, they are, and it was totally an accident. I didn't plan it that way. Um, I'm not sure if it is some sort of a trend uh, or if it's just a coincidence. I did have a brief conversation yesterday with Ray Bowman, who is now retired but was Stats Canada guy for Rural Statistics. And he said that the trend is that every 30 years you see the new generation coming up. Mm. So this is that year, 2016, 2017, is the next 30 years. So right. he kind of predicted uh, a little bit um, of an upswing in the number of younger farmers. Right. Uh, but Canadian farm population, the average age is still 55. Yeah, interestingly, uh, prior to uh, coming out to Newfoundland, I was working in ag, I was selling high-tech computer software programs uh, to pig farmers, which was uh, an adventure in itself. <laughs> and uh, I was spending a lot of time on the road visiting um, hog producers. And I did note that, uh, you know, mainly I was talking to men, but uh, there was a pretty strong group of female producers, particularly in the grower barns. Uh, and I actually think there may have been some sort of sociological phenomenon happening there too. Okay, so who is Mary Ellen? Mary Ellen, so it's a little bit different story from the others. Um, she, 
always wanted to be a journalist and um, she was a really good friend. We used to work together. And then, well, I'll let her, um, let her tell that story. I liked being on the farm and I liked living here, but I never intended to farm. No, it was never, it was farming by default, really, is how I got here. I really wanted to be a journalist. The pay was terrible. I mean, you know that, but, uh, <laughs> and I really, <laughs> I still like that side of it. Like, I still like reading and writing and, and doing that kind of thing. And, but this is just for now. I think it's it's temporary, I hope. So what happened? What dragged her back to the farm? She kind of had no choice. Uh, her dad had hip replacement surgery and somebody needed to step in and she was the one who was um, available. Yeah, he both hips replaced him at once. He did a dual hip replacement. And then 18 months later, he um, had to have one fixed again. They um, He got a butt headbutt from a cow she gave him a, a snap and he broke a screw in his hip and uh <laughs> you know and he had calcium deposits all along the so they scraped the calcium deposits replaced the screw and built up the bone in his leg so he had a second surgery so he was out for another six months i think that's probably why i've ended up staying more than anything else because i never thought i would be where i would end up it was just default because my you know there wasn't enough people to do the work and I was a student so your academics kind of fall by the wayside I was doing my MA and then you know you just kind of let it go and and you kind of step into the void because they needed somebody my brother and his wife had just had their first baby and she couldn't be in the barn all the time and I didn't have a baby so it seemed a lot easier for me to come and do the work than for her so um but it's, it's really my brother and his wife that are going to take over the farm and they're the ones that are going to you know. It sounds like it's very much a true family operation. It really is. And it's been in the family for almost 200 years, since the 1830s. And today they have about 100 registered hosting cows. Uh, they milk about 50 of them at any given time. Um, so it's a small dairy farm by Canadian standards, right? Right, but still a lot of work for you know a handful of people, a family to do. And with dairy, you basically never get a break. That was for some reason surprising for me, although I should have thought of it, but unlike other forms of farming, they have to be in the barn every day, 365 yeah. days a year. When milking time comes, uh, you got to be there for those cows. Yeah, and uh, that's what um, Mary Ellen talked about as well. We're here Christmas Day, we're here Christmas Eve, we're here every day. It doesn't matter if Nanny dies or if, you know, if you're not feeling good. We all we all had the Norwalk virus this fall and just before Christmas and we luckily it staggered out amongst all of us that two people were well enough to come to the barn and do all the chores and, and that and then everybody else was just in the house sick. And we we were lucky it staggered out because if we'd all been sick at the same time, it would have been bad. And, and there's no supply like you know you call a temp agency if your secretary doesn't show up but if but if you know your family member's sick to milk the cows there's no one to call like there's no backup plan there's no substitute teacher when you're milking and when you're farming that's the big one of the big things that i've learned being home on the farm the last few years you come no matter what like it's, if your leg hurts if you're got a headache it doesn't matter you you have to go to the barn so she seems to have a real sense of sort of like grounded reality in, in what it means to run a dairy operation. And I guess that makes sense because she grew up on the farm, right? 
Yeah, she did. And her dad never wanted to teach her how to farm because it was her brother who was supposed to take over the farm. Um, but right now, while well, her brother and sister-in-law are busy um, raising a very young family, they have three kids now, um, she is the one who keeps the farm going. She's been at it now for five years. So <clears throat> how's her dad uh, reacting to the sort of shift of plans? Um, it seems like the farm would be in trouble if not for her. Absolutely. And um, here is how she described the new relationship. When he sell, tells people I'm milk, he says, oh, she comes in handy. That's what he says. I guess it's, I don't know exactly what he thinks of me milking. And, and I don't, I don't know. I think he likes it. I think he likes that I'm here all the time. Like, and, and he'll tell people, you know, that I can milk all the cows by myself and do the barn chores. But, uh, yeah, I don't know. He and I talk a lot about farming and that, which is a different conversation than we ever used to have. We used to talk about hockey mostly. Uh, or the weather, but now we talk about cows and, and heats and calves and, and feed and pigs. He hates the pigs, by the way. But anyway, uh, he just likes the Holsteins. The whole farm were just Holstein cows. That's all you need. The son-daughter male-female expectations are interesting, um, and I really don't, I don't think that was the case with my cousin Lindsay. First of all, she's an only child. <laughs> But also, none of us cousins, um, you know, there, there are a number of cousins who at any point, um, you know, some of them worked summers on the farm, did this and that. We all picked a couple of rocks here and there as kids. But uh, none of the other cousins have ended up back on the farm, male or female. Yeah, and I think some of it has to do with particular families. I think some of it is changing now. Um, there's a lot more women in farming um, than maybe actually running farms. Yeah, and I feel like we really do need to note here that uh, women have always been such an essential part of family of family farming operations in particular. Um, you can't kind of can't overstate that point. No, no, you really can't. Um, before we chat about your cousin more, um, let me introduce you to Lisa Paganelli. So that's the Italian woman who runs the farm near Bologna. Yes, so her farm, it's... This amazingly beautiful, hilly portion of Emilia-Romagna region. So it's the heart of Italian food culture. The best restaurants in the world are in Modena. And, uh, you know, everything is about food. The tourism is about food, food production, food enjoyment, food culture. Um, the things that we associate with Italian food come from Emilia-Romagna region. So uh, Parmesan cheese, Bolognese sauce... All of these things. Oh, my. That sounds better than the uh, grocery store ham sandwich that I just had for lunch. <laughs> it does. Uh, I really enjoyed, um, I really enjoyed uh, my time in, uh, in Bologna and in that whole region um, earlier this year. And her farm is very big. It's big even by Canadian standards. It's um, over 600 acres, um, 250 hectares. Um, so it's pasture land, fields, and she breeds free-range cattle for meat, and she does it organically, so it's very labor-intensive. The farm is quite big for our area, and it's about 250 hectares, and we breed, uh, we cultivate whatever needs to for our cows on, on land, so we're self-sufficient with all the, the, the food and the cereals and the for cattle and uh, this makes 
the system work because being self-sufficient we can keep the the cost of uh, the 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 running business low and we manage to improve uh, the economical system of the farm we grow wheat which is the only cereal that we sell and the rest we we cultivate for the cattle it's bailey and other kind of um, wild wheat that's only for our animals and uh, peas and other proteic um, cereals but no maize or soya because of the wild animals <laughs> that love it as well and uh, so we create competition between the farmer and the wild <laughs> animals so we have to breed uh, cereals that aren't so attractive for wild animals. So interesting and it's such a different approach uh, than uh, what we see primarily uh, in terms of North American production where um, it's uh, highly integrated in terms of um, different products uh, being shipped and brought large distances and, and you know there's sort of that efficiency to the system and the economy of scale but this is, uh, this is very much taking sort of a um, <clears throat> with one, within one operation, just sort of self-sufficiency and being able to uh, produce what's needed to, to make it happen. Um, so how did she get into running this operation? It's kind of interesting because it's her dad's farm that she inherited. Um, her dad was a bank manager. And one day he decided that he wanted his dream and he bought a farm uh, with 20 cows and she has grown that farm to 120 uh, cows now. Uh, she's also a veterinarian, uh, so she's quite knowledgeable about the cattle and the animals on the farm. Uh, but it wasn't always easy to be accepted as a woman farmer or even a woman veterinarian. And as a Croatian coming from Southern Europe, I can probably say that that was probably a bit cultural. Um, there is still sort of these remnants of that macho culture. So it was a bit of a surprise when she would show up. To, you know, doctor. For me, it was to get into the mentality of the local farmers. First of all, because I'm a woman, and uh, because I'm young, and I had to tell them what to do, and they didn't want to accept this. And it was very difficult to to change their ways. That was the most difficult part. And it happened in my family as well, because my father also didn't allow me <laughs> to do certain things. And then slowly, slowly he changed. And uh, I saw that you can't go in other people's house to teach them what you must do, but you must give them the example. If you are the first one to do it and you do right, then the others will follow you. But I already uh, had that experience as a vet. And uh, curing cattle as a female, as a, as a girl, sorry, I've got veterinarian <laughs> terms, was very hard. And in the first visits that I used to do, they thought I was like the, the postman, I had to deliver post or whatever, but I, they didn't think I was the vet. <laughs> so it was quite funny in the beginning, <laughs> but I managed to do that as well. <laughs> Interesting. So she figured out how to make it work for her. Uh, what did she mean when she said that she gets to tell other farmers what to do? Uh, the interesting thing about Lisa and her farm is that she didn't want to work in the isolation, which is a norm in the region. Every farmer is quite protective about the way they do things. 
So she created a small consortium of flock of farmers. Uh, it started with just four farmers, and now there is about a dozen farms that participate. Um, she said most of the farmers tend to be younger uh, because they're more open to new ways of doing things, but she has some older generation farmers as well in the consortium now. Uh, and it's more than just about working together. It's really the same way that she integrated her whole farm, the marketing and working together, she also tries to integrate all of that together. Uh, seeing that our farms are very far apart one to the other, I decided to create a system where we could all uh, get together and uh, manage to supply enough food for the, for the request that we had. So getting together, uh, each one of us has a special uh, part in the, um, in the system. So we breed cattle. There are people that uh, have got dairy cows and so they produce milk and cheese. Others produce vegetables. And all together we manage to supply the, 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 the people in the villages. We supply the schools and we created our own closed system. Uh, this gives uh, an oppo opportunity to the, the farmers to improve the, uh, what they earn, their earning. So we created this local system and we're trying to teach other people to, to do the same in other parts of Italy because if we create small groups complete. The people must learn to go and do their shopping by the farmers. <laughs> but at the same time, we need to teach people that when you go and do shopping at your farm and nearby, you don't always have products that you find all over, all around the year. So strawberries you eat only in summer, like tomatoes and other vegetables. And in winter, you must eat <laughs> cabbage <laughs> and potatoes and that's the circle of, uh, of nature. So we teach people how to cook differently, how to change their mentality in doing shopping and it's working. So it sounds like she's got an incredibly localized um, sort of uh, network happening. Um, and I also kind of hear that she's got big plans and that she sort of has kind of a, a, a fundamental vision to sort of shift the way that people are understanding the things that they eat and, and even where they buy the things that they eat. Um, could you tell me a little bit more about that? That's exactly what they're trying to do. So they supply regional agritourism businesses, they supply schools. Um, but before we went to Lisa's farm, we came to a little town that's nearby. Um, and it's an old school town that still has a butcher shop that she supplies. It has a vegetable shop that the local farmers supply. So they're really, and there is no uh, supermarket. So they're really working with the local communities to make abundant amounts of produce and meat available to people and make it available seasonally, uh, which is really interesting because even in a place like Italy, we got away from that seasonal way of eating, right? The agritourism business uh, is really interesting because her brother uh, on the farmland has this beautifully restored uh, 18th century property that he turned into a restaurant serving local food, um, a spa and a small uh, inn with 12 rooms. Um, but the main attraction is organically produced food 
and beautiful rural landscape. I should also mention that uh, when Lisa talks about organic agriculture, um, it's a highly scientific thing, uh, and I should probably let her explain uh, what she means because I'm not a soil scientist. We tried to improve the agriculture techniques, uh, introducing bacteria and microorganisms in the ground, and we evaluate the biological biodiversity, biodiversity of the ground. So every year we take analysis of the, the, the soil and we see which is the level of the, the biodiversity and according to that we, we cultivate some kinds of cereals or others and uh, we decide what to do maintaining the, the vitality in the soil because that's what comes out it's the first part to, to take care of. Oh, that's really interesting. Organic sometimes has this weird urban supermarket connotation to it. But with her, she's really just talking about having a deep understanding of the land that she's working. Uh, and she's also not against using tools and techniques um, to alter it. No, and I think part of it is cultural because the food and the landscape is now so deeply embedded in what it means to be Italian. So taking care of it in that very careful way um, is really important to her. Oddly enough, uh, Italy actually did not have some of the organic certification rules that you would assume would exist. So for example, Lisa invented a whole new way of certifying organic beef that is now in the process of becoming a national certification process. And all that from a small cattle farm in the middle of beautiful <laughs> Italian countryside. Uh, how does she feel now about her decision to go back to the farm and to get so involved with the farming community? I think she made peace with it. Uh, I would do everything exactly the same because even if I had hard days, sometimes you, you get depressed and you cry and you say, why am I doing this that no one wants to listen to me? But at the end, it's hard work, but it's, it's nice to create something new. So what you get in return is worth it day by day. Hmm. I think there's a certain self-determination to it. Um, I think and that's certainly part of what drew my cousin Lindsay back to the farm. Okay, tell me about Lindsay. Uh, okay, so her name is Lindsay Menick. She is my uh, rough and tumble, one of my... <laughs> I shouldn't say she's one of my favorite cousins, should I? That's not right. Um, she's currently farming in southwestern Ontario near a small town called Teeterville. So there's one operation just outside Teeterville. And then the other operation is the, uh, the Coho family farm that uh, I mentioned earlier in the interview. So she actually grew up um, living at various times at both sites. Uh, and just like Mary Ellen, she never planned to actually work on the farm. I could not leave the farm fast enough. <laughs> <laughs> I went to, um, I definitely in high school was absolutely not one iota interested in being anywhere near here. Um, so I, I chose to go to um, the farthest university away that I could find, which was McGill, and spent five years there, and it was great. What did she do at McGill? Engineering, actually. Uh, she was interested in steel design and eventually worked on the World Trade Center Memorial in New York City. Uh, you know, as far as you can get from Burgessville, Ontario, essentially, and she loved every minute of it. But... Well... <laughs> Her dad, Frank, actually convinced her then-boyfriend, Drew, now husband, 
that life on the farm just has something special about it that can't compare. We totally took the bait and fell for it. That's hilarious. So how are they doing today? They're doing great. They're doing really well. We, we manage two operations. Um, Homeland Farm is uh, my mother's um, family's operation, and um, we grow corn, soybeans, and wheat there. Um, and uh, our other operation grows tobacco, and now we've just taken on hops, and we also grow ginseng there. Um, so they're very different, very different types of farming. And um, that said, they uh, they work well together. Um, ginseng was an interesting choice. Yeah, so uh, Teeterville is pretty close to Delhi, which is one of the big sort of classic tobacco centers for Ontario, southwestern Ontario. And as you saw, uh, some changes to the way that uh, tobacco was grown and the industry and, and some of that stuff, you actually saw a lot of the farmers in that region exploring alternative crops. And ginseng is one of the ones that actually seems to have sort of taken hold. It's not unusual to see the sort of covered rows that indicate that ginseng is being grown. Huh. So one of the things that Lindsay talked about uh, was the business side of running a firm. Um, now, knowing, knowing my Aunt Lynn and knowing Lindsay's mom, I know that she saw that that was part of uh, running that sort of an operation from early stages. We all spent time hanging around that office listening to the fax machine. But um, I think that uh, it's something that she very quickly learned that she really has to pay a lot of attention to. Uh, and I think she's figured out a lot of systems for doing so as well. That's really interesting bit for me because of all of the people we talk to um, have interesting backgrounds, history and journalism, veterinary medicine, engineering. Yeah, I know that Lindsay felt strongly that having a background um, and having some experience beyond the farm really helped her in being able to come back in and jump right in to, to learn the things that she needed to learn. A farming business is... Um there's just so many facets that I really don't think that people would think about when they're thinking about farming. Like, um, you own a business that these days are worth a lot of money and you're, there's a lot of money at stake. If we're sitting in Oxford County uh, or in Norfolk County, which are the two areas where we have our farm, um, an acre of land in Oxford is over $20,000 an acre. Um, and that price has something to do with supply management um, and something to do with the price of, um, of commodities. Um, if you're looking at a conventional farm and the equipment that you require, you're looking at hundreds of thousands of dollars of equipment on conventional farming. Um, and the price of land and simply the amount of knowledge um, that you require to make this happen uh, is pretty tough. It would be very, very tough. And I think that it's really interesting that people are making, trying to make a go of that. Um, and there are, the other interesting side of that is that there are a lot of older generation farmers who 
whose children, like myself, went off and left and who actually are looking for people who might, that they could teach farming to and who might be interested in one day buying that farm. The day-to-day operations in owning a farm are such a challenge. I don't know how to word that properly. Like, getting back to things that, like, people don't maybe think about related to farming um, and why it might interest somebody who is not from a farming background once they kind of get to know what's going on and why like why it ended up being uh, an exciting option for me and for Drew. In engineering, you had interesting problems that had a very linear trajectory um, to a final conclusion. And here you have every single day is like so many different problems and so many different methods of management that you need to be thinking about, especially in um, our crops that require a lot of um, human input and are hand harvested. There's a lot, there is, there are new challenges every single day um, and you are kind of constantly fighting the clock to get things done and to keep people moving and to um, do your marketing and, and all of these things are all happening at once and you have to be cognizant of your um, balance sheet and, and how your finances are doing and there's just a, a lot of things that are really interesting that um, I think you don't get in the jobs that Drew and I were doing. I think that that is something that um, might draw people back to the farm, especially people who grew up on the farm. After they leave, it might they may feel some interest in coming back because of the all the stuff that goes on on a daily basis. It's that relationship between the farm, life, family dynamics, that's really fascinating. And that must be so hard to manage. Yeah, and I think it, it, it is. <laughs> uh, but it also has such a positive side to it that I know that both Lindsay and Drew really value. Uh, but it's not without its challenges. I think that uh, going away and learning something of any kind is really important. Um, And uh, specifically engineering, I'm not sure that that was a huge thing, but I do think working in a role um, like a nine-to-five sort of job uh, where you certainly have deadlines and, uh, and... it was a fairly like high stress job as well because there was a lot going on. Um, it teaches you a way of working that um, I have found quite useful um, to come back. Uh, and that's not to say that um, work ethic of children that grow up on farms is great and employers are often very happy to be hiring people who have grown up on a farm. But... Um, I think that going away just shows you what else is out there. And then you see different options in terms of HR management 
um, which has been useful for us uh, because we do have quite a few employees. Um, you see how when you work on a farm and it's just your family, it's so insular um, and you often don't treat your family the way you would treat other like co-workers and I think that can be a problem. <laughs> Um, so I think that working somewhere else teaches you to respect people that you work with um, and how to talk to people that you work with in, and how to achieve your goals in, um, in a more positive way. I think that if you're going to uh, succeed at doing this, you need to... Um, you need to totally change your expectations on, on family lifestyle. Um, the great thing about farming and the great thing about being here is that we are so close to our family all day. You know, Drew and I can come into the house and see our kids throughout the day. They work with us. They know what we're doing. They're, we're teaching them every day what, um, what our work ethic is. Um, and also what our family values are. Like we have, we get to have so much time with them, but the other side of that is weekends don't exist really at this time of year. You know, sometimes you, sometimes they do, um, but there is not a, it's not a Monday to Friday job. Um, we don't often have evenings off or weekends off, um, to plan a, an outing or to go to the cottage or stuff like that. So you need to learn how to take um, take advantage and and be thankful for those times. Family dynamics can be difficult to manage at the best of times, uh, and especially when it comes to things like succession planning, um, which is going to be a major issue as we look over the next 5, 10, 15 years in the Canadian farming uh, landscape. Um, there's just so much wrapped into that. And actually, Lindsay suggested that we should make a whole episode just on that topic. Um, we actually probably should, given how much everybody talked about it. Um, the last farmer we are going to hear about actually came up with quite a structure to transition the farm ownership between the generations. Uh, but before we listen to that, um, did you ask Lindsay um, about the things that were sort of unexpectedly frustrating? Well, of course. Anytime you get two co-hosts together, there's going to have to be a little bit of complaining. <laughs> uh, it was a really interesting and nuanced answer, and it has to do with this strange narrative uh, that we see uh, in the media in particular about farmers and agri-food business and science and where this all fits into the food system that feeds us all. One of the, the, the biggest things that frustrate me about talking to people about farming is that, um, is that is the stereotype of the big red barn and, and people feel like we're shills of some big chemical company or something or that like we can't think on our that we can't make good business decisions or good stewardship decisions on our own and um, I think that if people 
if more urban people or people who are making general decisions that affect um, us would meet more, especially young farmers, um, they would find a group of really well-educated people who are looking at many facets before making decisions related to their business. And uh, um, I personally feel like I am at the lower end of that scale, but there's like so many people who, so many people of my generation who just live and breathe the um, science of farming and the business side of it. And those are the people that uh, should be involved in making decisions. And that's my political spiel. I can certainly see her point. And I'm probably also guilty of indulging in that kind of, you know, conspiracy thinking. Yeah, um, as a uh, farm kid in an urban center, I think I see that a lot of people do that. Uh, and I think the thing that we forget is that uh, science and also um, the collaboration between scientists and progressive forward-thinking uh, farm producers like Lindsay and Drew uh, and, and the other people we've talked with today, um, they're such an important part of how we feed ourselves and they've contributed so much to making um, a food system that's reliable, that uh, can give us what we want, what we need, when we want it. Um, there's this food stability that exists in our world and in, in our in our part of the world that um that didn't just happen out of the blue <laughs> um so let's move on from there I, i'm interested in finding out more about the last farmer we're going to talk to well she actually comes from the area that you sort of grew up in southwestern ontario her name is katrina McQuail, and she runs a mixed organic farm near lucknow uh, her farm is about 100 acres and she had um, sort of a roundabout way of getting back to the farm as well. Uh, and I'll let her kind of explain how that happened. I grew up on the farm. I feel very fortunate to have had a childhood on the farm. And then at 16, I went away for school. And I finished up high school north of Toronto in King City. And then I did my university degree in business and not-for-profit management in Indiana. I kind of had a little wanderlust, so I took a little tootle around and eventually came back to the farm for two seasons where I ran our market garden and a small CSA. We did four farmers markets for those two summers and had a um, flaming breakup, we'll call it, and um, actually thought that I was going to stay on the farm and my mom uh, took a big risk and was like, actually, I think you need a break. You need to separate the farm from that breakup. So have a nice time. Uh, we'd love to have you back, but not yet. And so I left and I spent uh, four years running a social change not-for-profit in Guelph, Ontario. Um, and I loved the not-for-profit. I love what they do um, and what they still do. But I, on my bad days, or like, you know, the days where you've just been like, I've been at a computer my entire day, would find myself daydreaming about having my hands in the dirt and being with the animals and just kind of that farm life. And so I was ready to tell my folks that I was going to come back and they sat my older sister and I down and were like, hey, so if neither of you wants the farm in the next two years, we're going to like have to start figuring something out because we're ready to start retiring. 
and uh, I was like, hey, guess what? I'm ready to come home. Um, and I originally called it my PhD in farming. I thought that if I looked at it and gave it my heart and soul for five to seven years, which is what I would have done if I was doing a PhD program, that I could, you know, instead of, you know, kind of like easing back into it, which means that you're not fully committed, um, that by giving it my heart and soul and 100% that I'd really know. And so I've been back for two and a half years and I can't see myself uh, going anywhere else or doing anything else. It's been incredible, um, which doesn't mean there aren't hard moments. I love that story, especially the uh, motherly wisdom. <laughs> it's wonderful. Um, so obviously she's had ups and downs. What are some of the hardest moments that she's dealt with? Most of those moments for her had to do with family dynamics. And Katrina and her family came up with quite an elaborate system on how to handle the transition between the generations. We, um, our family is very intentional about things. And so we, um, we have contracts and written out expectations for how things would work and uh, signed on to those so that um, we can always look back at them and make sure that we are behaving in the way that we planned. And one of those things was a intention transition. So my first year back, um, my folks uh, were very much the in charge people. They still owned the farm business. They owned the farmland. They made the ultimate decisions about anything, finances, everything. And that year was very much a mentorship year. And um, I used to give the analogy that I felt like they were just cramming. Like you, if you could, if you could visually imagine two people trying to take all of the knowledge out of their brains and stuff it into someone else's, like that's what that year was. Um, and then this past year has been where we legally transitioned and I bought the business from my parents. And so I'm now the official decision maker. Um, and so they are still very much my mentors. They're still very involved in the farm day to day and business. But when it comes down to it, I get to make the final decision. I think it's so interesting that they made it such a formal process. And it really, it seems like quite a departure from uh, if you consider sort of the stereotype of passing on the farm, it seems quite different from what I think a lot of people would imagine goes on. I know. <laughs> <laughs> um, she also came up with these little psychological tactics on to help level the playing field between her and her parents, um, just in terms of knowledge. Uh, and I love the story about the pigs and how she got to have pigs on the farm. One of the things on the farm that my folks did in terms of figuring out how they worked really well together was having little domains on the farm. And so my mom for years was very much the gardens person. We had a huge CSA and my dad was more the fencing pasture guy. Uh, and so when I moved in, I was like, you guys have your domains. Like, where's my place on the farm? And I love pigs. Um, and so I, last, last summer, I bought two gilts from seven month old gilts from a organic neighbor or friend of ours and they showed up one day and my folks were like um so these uh because we'd always raised them 
like bought in wieners and raised up them for them up for the summer and then sold them and I was like no no we're gonna do the whole system and so they're like you're gonna how are you gonna breed them you know like totally not thought through in the way they wanted it I was like oh we'll figure it out so um, my gilts arrived their names are Sneeze and Hiccup um, and uh, I decided that artificial insemination would be the best plan so that I wasn't having to keep a boar and do all of the management around having a boar. And now each of them has had two litters and we've just bred them again. But it was for me having the pigs and having pigs in a way that my parents had never done meant that we were equally inexperienced. And that for me has felt both challenging but also a great opportunity to learn with them but not have it be something that they can be like oh no we used to do it this way you should do it that way like it's we're learning together and we're doing it the way that I ultimately choose with their advice based on the research they're also doing. I do feel like any farm kid who ever watched Charlotte's Web knows that you must never name your piggies. <laughs> <laughs> but that said, I think that what they're doing is really clever and clearly it's working for them. It does. And I do like how deliberate she is about everything that she does on the farm. Uh, she has plans to expand her operation. She's planning to bring back sheep to the farm, which is something that they used to have. Um, she is connecting with um, other local farmers and trying to cooperate a bit more, uh, especially in terms of marketing to their primary markets in southwestern Ontario and in Toronto. Um, it, it's really quite an interesting operation. Is there anything that she regrets or wishes that she'd done differently? I don't know if there are regrets, uh, but she certainly has things that she says she would like to do differently if she could do it again. I would have lower expectations about how much renovation work I would get done on my own living space, because um, that's definitely been a point of stress in, my dad is very handy and so he's done a lot of that work, but that takes him away from farm things. I would know that big changes take more time and so I think I've accepted it now, but when I first got back, I was like, and then this is going to change, and we're going to do this differently, and this is going to happen. And, you know, I'd get really frustrated when things took way longer. And part of it is not that the actual thing takes longer, but if you're going to make well-thought-out decisions, you have to have the time to think about them and the time to research them. And things are really busy on a farm. So knowing that my winters weren't going to be as quiet as I thought they would and that I would maybe take what I thought was a one-year plan and make it a five-year plan and then have better expectations about what's possible. I'd also have more celebration. I think we work really hard and having more opportunities to celebrate our successes and just hang out as a family and with our apprentices and friends, I think that's um, something that I'm hoping to weave into things as we move forward. That was such an interesting story. Uh, I love how all of these stories today kind of played against and with each other. Um, they were all such interesting voices, and we heard from people working such diverse operations, too, from the uh, sort of organic uh, Italian 
uh, integrated approach to some smaller farms, to a dairy operation, to Lindsay with her, um, her, her crop producing operations, um, different levels of interest in technology, uh, totally different approaches to what they're doing. But the one thing that I thought was so interesting and so unifying for all of them is that they have such clarity of vision of what they're trying to achieve. And each one of them sees this as an opportunity to do something new with the way that things have already always been done. I know, and I kind of feel a bit cheated because we just so lucked out to find these four really interesting, dynamic, passionate women. And it was really not planned at all. Yeah, it wasn't bad. I mean, these were just people who we knew and who we had met, and it turned out that they had so much uh, so much to sort of juxtapose with each other. Um, really exciting stuff. I know. So you grew up on a farm. Would you go back? <laughs> well, I certainly get romantic from time to time, but uh, I think... Uh, <laughs> I think I've developed some urban tastes. And the fact is, Lindsay was always a harder worker than I was. <laughs> <laughs> okay, we better close this episode here. Uh, want to do the honors? Sure thing. You've just listened to another episode of Rural Roots. My name is Rebecca Cahoe. And I'm Brian Fierst. Today you heard Mary Ellen Godfrey in PEI. Uh, Lisa Paganelli on Emilia Romagna region in Italy. Lindsay Menick and Katrina McQuail in Southwest Ontario. Rural Roots is produced in collaboration between the Leslie Harris Centre of Regional Policy and Development at Memorial University of Newfoundland, Canadian Rural Revitalization Foundation and Rural Policy Learning Commons Partnership, bringing together rural scholars and policymakers in Canada and abroad. The show is supported through a Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada grant. The song that you hear at the beginning and at the end of this show is called North Star, and it was composed by Laura Bates and performed by Trent Severn. If you listen to Rural Roots on your campus or community radio, please let us know what you thought. If you listen to the podcast version of the show, feel free to encourage your local radio station to get in touch if they're interested in broadcasting the program. The show is available to community and campus radio stations free of charge through the National Campus and Community Radio Association Program Exchange. Thanks for listening, and I hope you join us next time. To subscribe to the podcast, visit ruralrootspodcast.com. That's all one word, rural, R-O-U-T-E-S, podcasts.com. I'm Rebecca Cahoe. And I'm Brian Fierst. And you just listened to Rural Roots. Yeah, that was great. That was really fun. Yeah.